Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you, a red Bible, and it will be page 952 in that red Bible. We are now in our second week in our new series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you were unable to make last week, I encourage you to listen to it online on our website or iTunes podcast uh, as we kind of talked about the foundation of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Last week in the first nine verses, uh, we discovered Paul's secret to loving unlovely Christians, to loving an unlovely church, to loving people who have hurt us within the church. And what he has taught us, the secret, is that we must remember our shared identity, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're united in Christ, that we are sanctified by Christ, that we are saints in Christ together. We must also celebrate their giftedness. The chances are is that the way that they have hurt us is they're using God-given gifts in a way that is hurtful towards us, and so we can celebrate their gift and encourage them to use it in a way that builds up the body of Christ. And finally, and I think most importantly, Paul teaches us that we must trust God's faithfulness to sustain our brothers and sisters in Christ until Christ returns, that God will be faithful to nourish them and to grow them into the image of Jesus. As we move to verses 10 through 17 today, we will see that Paul's greeting and introduction is over. And he plunges into one of the main emphasis of this letter, one of his major concerns for the church in Corinth as he pursues this this division that's within the church and encourages them towards unity. And so while last week it instructed us how we can love an unlovely church, today's passage instructs us how we can help unite an ununited church. So let's look together, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. This is God's word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word today hungry for truth, hungry for hope, hungry for love. We have searched for it in so many places, and it always leaves us empty. And we're so thankful that you do feed us through your word week after week. We confess, God, that we are prone to disunity. We are prone to disunity in our houses, in our workplaces, in our marriages, and in our churches. And so, God, pray that you will bring unity in the midst of disunity for our good and, again, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2013, Pastor Kevin DeYoung wrote an article entitled, Why Pastors Quit. And at the top of his list is division, division, disunity, and conflict in the church. He says this, he says, statistics regarding pastors are not encouraging. The Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development reports that 35 to 40% of ministers last less than five years. Many statistics show that 60 to 80% of those who enter the ministry will no longer be laboring in ministry 10 years later. And so that means seven out of 10 ministers usually leave the ministry within the first 10 years. Kevin goes on to discuss why pastors quit. And the first reason he gives is conflict. He says, conflict is arguably one of the biggest surprises to young pastors. Conflict happens in the church and it happens all the time. Those in ministry will often be called upon to mediate conflict, to navigate the waters of conflict and are regularly the target of much conflict. Pastors will find there are hateful, petty, arrogant, rude, brooding, and discontent people in their congregation. Unfortunately, and coming as a surprise to many pastors, is the fact that the unconverted don't tend to cause the majority of conflict. It is the converted who often launch the hardest persecutions. And then he says this, it is also true, and I know this, it is also true that pastors are often the source of conflict themselves. Sin, errors, and judgment, and mistakes in leadership can cause firestorms. You know, it's interesting. Yesterday, I was at one of my kids' basketball games, and between games, it was at a high school about an hour south of here, but there was this beautiful mural, and most of the mural was covered up by a saying, and the saying went like this. You've probably heard it before, but the saying was this. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Someday I hope you'll join us and the world will live as one. Do you know who said that? John Lennon, right? Those famous words. I think deep within all of us, there is this desire for unity and for harmony in all of our relationships. First and foremost with God, but we want unity and harmony in our workplaces, don't we? We want unity and harmony in our homes. It's, it's a struggle when, when the kids are fighting or when we're fighting with the kids. We want unity and harmony in our marriage that we can be on the same page and get along and enjoy one another. All of us were created with this longing for unity, but unity does not come naturally. 
in a fallen world, unity is something that has to be fostered. It is something that has to be fought for in all of these groups, including the church. You know, we are an opinionated people. We are a proud people. We are a sinful people. And we are pretty sure that we are right and everybody else is wrong. And they just need to jump on board with us. Unity in Christ's church is hard work. It is a fight. It can be tiresome. It can be frustrating. It can be overwhelming. But the question is, is it worth the fight? Is pursuing unity in the church worth our energies, worth our efforts, worth our frustrations? Is it worth it? Especially when it's so easy to just hit the eject button. To just say, you know what? I don't need God's church. I can do church on my own at home, right? Which, by the way, is not church. But anyways, you know what I'm saying. Or they can say, you know what? I'm just going to hop from church to church to church and never really get connected to a local church because I really just follow Jesus, right? Is it worth the fight to fight for unity in the church? Oh, I think Jesus answers this question for us well. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father. This is just right before he's going to be crucified. He knows he's, he's going to be crucified. It's called the high priestly prayer. And he is pouring out his, his heart to the Father of his deepest desires. And he prays this. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Talking about his disciples. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as, and love them even as you loved me. Jesus' heart prayer is that there would be unity in the church, that we would be perfectly one. How do we build unity in church? What is your role? What is my role for building unity in the church here at Jacob's Well locally, but also the church throughout Green Bay and the church throughout the entire world? What is our role in building unity in Christ's church as Christ prayed for the Father to the Father would happen? Well, we'll see here three ways dependent on the Holy Spirit, that we can fight the good fight of pursuing unity in the church. First, it is by fostering unity of mind. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul starts it. He says, I appeal to you. This is probably not strong enough language. He is saying, I am beseeching you. I am exhorting you. I am imploring you. Brothers. I love it. It's like he's reminding me. Remember your family. I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you. That all of you agree and there may be no division or schismata, schisma, schism, that there may be no schism among you. It's a picture of a, of, of a cloth being torn in two. Now, as we look at this, you know, we may think, man, is this call for unity, called to uniformity? He continues, he says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Again, it, does unity mean 
uniformity. I think that's where our heads naturally go. So, you know, I really enjoy country music and jalapeno peppers. Does this mean we all need to enjoy country music and jalapeno peppers? The answer is yes, we do, right? No, it's obvious no, right? Well, what about theologically? Do we need to believe the exact same thing about everything that the Bible says? Do we all need to agree on the end times view of the millennium? Do we all to agree on dispensational theology and covenant theology? Do we all need to agree on who's admitted to the table and to baptism and what it means and what it symbolizes and what's happening? Do we all have to believe on every single thing? Does unity mean that there must be uniformity? Well, I think the obvious answer to that is no. There cannot be uniformity because We don't have uniformity. We are people that think for ourselves and form opinions, and that's not a bad thing. And so how do we get unity without uniformity? Well, if you remember last week, I was talking about how as Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's he, he's, he's blunt with them about some things, but he's also pretty gracious to them. He's, he's gentle with them. Uh, he cares for them. He's, he's kind of soft with them in a good way. Um, and, and yet when he writes to Galatia in the book of Galatians, he's writing some teachers in Galatia, and he's not so gentle. He's actually extremely harsh. If you remember, in Galatians 1, he says, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, let him go to hell. It's what the Bible says, okay? Galatians 5, he goes on and says, I wish those who unsettle you, that is with a different gospel, would emasculate themselves. In other words, just take circumcision all the way. This is what Paul says to the teachers in Galatia. And yet in Corinth, he says, I thank God for you. And so the question is, why is Paul gentle with the Corinthians, and yet with the Galatians, he is so, he's so harsh and he is so fierce, And the reason is, is because the teaching in the Galatian church had struck at the vitals of our religion, had struck at the core of the gospel. Let let me illustrate this way. You've probably seen this before if you've been around Jacobswell Church for a while. Uh, I filled it out a little bit, but here you see a bullseye, three concentric circles. And in the middle circle, which is the red circle, you have the gospel core. The gospel core is is the foundation of our faith. It's what makes us Christians. It's worth fighting for and it's worth dying for, okay? And it's summarized uh, in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. This is what you have to believe in order to be a Christian, okay? And this is worth dividing over. But then you get to the next circle, which is biblical commitments. Uh, These are often summarized in confessions of faith, like the Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession, the Baptist Confession. These These kind of list out how we understand the scriptures. And because of this, trying to follow our biblically informed conscience, we end up in different denominations. Now, I know many times we say denominations are a horrible thing, but I actually think they're a pretty good thing in this way. And that we are able to assemble together with people who have similar biblical convictions and then practice those out together as a family. Now, denominations do come very, uh, are very bad in one way, which I think Paul's pointing out here, is when it causes division, when there is rivalry and hatred and anger to those of different denominations who hold different uh, biblical commitments that we do, that it divides us, okay? And so to be a member at Jacob's Well, all you have to subscribe to is the gospel core, right? The, the foundational things to being a Christian. 
To become an elder or a deacon, you have to, you have to agree with the biblical commitments because this is what makes us unique. These are the ways that we understand the scriptures. And then you have personal convictions on the outside. These are family convictions or individual convictions that change from person to person. For example, if I were to do a show of hands, and I'm not going to do it, but if I were to do a show of hands about uh, the music level this morning, and I said, how many of you think the music was too quiet? Probably a third of you would raise your hand. If I said, how many of you think the music was just right? Probably a third of you would raise your hand. If I said, if the music was, was too loud, probably a third of you would raise your hand. Raise your hand if you like the song selection. I don't know how many would raise their hand. The, per, the thing is, is that we all have these personal preferences. And where the rails go off the track is when we take these, uh, these personal convictions or these this, uh, and preferences or our biblical commitments, and we drive them to the core. I think this is what was happening at Corinthians. They're saying, hey, I love the teaching of Paul, of Apollos. I want to carry their convictions, and I want to push them to the core and make them my gospel. And then it starts dividing up the church. But what Paul is saying here is, listen, if we are going to be unified, even though we are very diverse in a lot of the things that we understand and a lot of our preferences, if we are going to be unified, we must be unified in the gospel. This must be our core. We must keep the main thing the main thing and be united in this main thing. Be of one mind about this main thing. Let me give you an example of how it plays out in the church of Green Bay. So a couple years ago when David Gallagher was our youth dude, um, he gathered together with, it was called the Brown County Youth Network. And I was actually part of it when I was doing youth ministry over at New Hope Church. And you had people gathered there from the Lutheran Church, from the Methodist Church, from the Presbyterian Church, from the Baptist Church, from the non-denominational church, which is, by the way, a denomination. But all of these people were gathered together and they encouraged one another and they enjoyed Jesus together. They celebrated the gospel together. And it was a beautiful picture of how you could have unity, even though there was not uniformity. They were united in the central core gospel. But then came along another person, another youth worker, and they seemed to love Jesus, and they were very nice, but they denied the Trinity, which is at the core of our faith. It's summarized in Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, but this is, this is something that is central. And so they talked to them. He tried, they tried to share the scripture with them and tried to try to change their mind up, but, but he was set where he was in his theology. And so they said, hey, you can't be a part of this because, because we can't be one with a heretic. And so there's, there's places where there are unity, even in the midst of diversity, but there are also places where we have to draw a line where we say, this is a point of division. And the gospel is a point of division. That's why in Galatians, Paul is so harsh because they're preaching a different gospel. And so, we are called to unity of mind. I think the motto of the EPC denomination, which Pastor Jonathan came from, summarizes it very well. It says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I'll say it again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. And so how do we as members of Jake's Well Church and members of the Church of Green Bay and the Universal Church stay united 
Even though we may have different biblical commitments and personal conviction, it's by keeping the main thing the main thing and not pushing the commitments and the convictions into the core and causing division among the church. And so that's how we fight for the unity of the church, fostering unity of mind in the gospel, but also by fostering unity of master. Look at verse 11 with me. Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In the world of the New Testament, uh, there were not movie stars or, or, or elite athletes. The rock stars of the day were philosophers and orators. I mean, in some ways, it was a really good time to be a nerd, right? Because you were kind of the celebrity of the community. And so people would, would be evangelists for these orators, these preachers that they like. Some, just like we're kind of evangelists for our favorite band or our favorite TV show or actor, they're evangelists. And, and they would say, you know, I follow this guy or this guy or this guy. And they were identifying themselves with the teacher. Now, these teachers all had different styles, okay? So you have Paul. Paul is kind of just a simple, I'm going to preach to you the gospel, and I'm going to let you hear the good news of what Christ has done. He, it's a modern-day example of that would be like a, a Billy Graham or a Ray Comfort or Luis Palau, if you know any of those. Then some would say, you know what, I follow Apollos. Now, Apollos was a great teacher. He was actually a fantastic orator. Um, and he was extremely well-educated. And he loved Jesus. He loved the gospel. And so he would be able to take on the philosophers of the day. And, and some of the people really love this about Apollos. Say he was just so sharp, so intellectual. A modern-day version of those would be people like Tim Keller or Ravi Zachariah or R.C. Sproul, if you know any of those. Others would say, I follow Cephas. Okay? Now, who's Cephas? Kind of sounds like a, a redneck, doesn't it? But Cephas is actually the apostle Peter. And the apostle Peter definitely had his own style, too. Peter was very blunt. Peter was kind of a turn or burn guy, okay? That's how he would preach, fire and brimstone. And some people thought it was really refreshing, really refreshing that someone would be so honest. They wouldn't dance around issues. And so people like that today might be people like John Piper or Vadi Bakum or, or Paul Washer, or others that are just so direct and kind of in your face. And now what's interesting about this is all of these men, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, all of them were seeking to exalt Christ, to exalt God. They loved the gospel and they loved one another. And so, at least in this case, the problem was not with the preacher. It was with the parishioners who identified themselves more with the servants of Christ than with Christ himself. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's probably just a page or two. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is, is addressing this issue from a different angle. Look with me in verses 4 through 7. Paul says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In other words, aren't you acting just like a, a non-Christian, a carnal person in the world that you're following around people that you can see, that you can hear, that touch. I, you know, I think of it as how people, I mean, it's amazing to see how people will get so defensive about their favorite politician as if they are perfect and flawless and they will promote them and they will follow them. And you know, that's what they're all about. He says, aren't you just acting like that? 
Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? What's the answer to that? What's a, what is Paul? What is Apollos? What is Billy Graham? What is Tim Keller? What is Dan Jackson? What, what are these people? He tells us. Servants. Doulos. Slaves of Christ. Through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. He ain't nothing, but only God who gives the growth. You know, when I read this passage, it reminded me of that Casting Crown song that is out that says, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. The problem the Corinthians had they were primarily following servants of the Lord rather than the Lord himself. This should be a sharp warning to any of us who lead with this identity of being a Calvinist or an Arminian. This is not our identity. It might, it might direct people on how we understand the scriptures, but this is not who we are. We are Christians first and foremost. I always get very uncomfortable when someone says, hey, are you a Calvinist? I'm like, well, no, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm a Bible. I love the Bible. Do I lean a certain direction? Yes, I do, but... Our identity is first and foremost in Christ, and he is our master. One of my favorite stories uh, is about the Beecher family. Lindman Beecher Stowe records a story about his two sons in his book entitled Saints, Sinners, and Beechers. That was their last name. And on one occasion, his son Henry was scheduled to preach at the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. And Henry was a very famous man. He was a social reformer and a traveling preacher. So when people heard that Henry was coming to preach on a Sunday morning, they came from all over to hear him speak. The problem was is that he wasn't able to make it. He wasn't able to preach. And so his brother, Thomas, substituted in for his famous brother. And when Thomas came up to the pulpit, all who had come to see uh, his brother preached. Many of them got up and started heading towards the doors. And he called their attention. And he said to them, he said, all who have come here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may now withdraw. All who have come to worship God, keep your seats. You know, when you show up at church and your preferred preacher or musician is not leading, does your heart sink a little bit? I have to confess, when I go to conferences and someone that I want to hear preach isn't preaching, I'm sitting there going, oh, man. And the question that we have to ask ourselves in that moment is, why did I even come? Who did I come to hear from? Who did I come to worship? Who did I come to enjoy? Did I come to hear from the preacher or did I come to hear from God? Did I come to enjoy the preacher or did I come to enjoy God? We must be mastered by Christ and not his servants. There is such a temptation because his servants, again, are visible. They are touchable. You can shake their hand. You can hear them audibly. But Paul says, no, your master is Christ. Now, what about this fourth option in verse 12? Look at it again. It says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow 
Christ. Whenever I read this passage before, I usually viewed it as a multiple choice, right? Like, A, you follow Paul. B, you follow Paulus. C, you follow Thephus. Or D, do you follow Christ, right? And the obvious answer is D, we follow Christ, right? But reading through different commentators, I think that what he is talking about when he says, I follow Christ, is another distortion of Christianity that creates disunity in the church. These are the people who will say, you know what? I don't even need the church. I don't need any teachers. I don't need any elders. I don't need any deacons. I don't need any leadership over me. It's just me and Jesus. We got a good thing going, right? I don't need anyone to speak into my life. I don't need anyone to hold me accountable. I don't need anyone to feed me. A lot of these people, again, recede from the church because they're wounded. And so they pursue individualism and it becomes very sad and desperate because they have forsaken the community that God has put in front of them. See, to be committed to Christ means also being committed to the bride of Christ, his church. To submit to yourself to the leadership of the church as the scriptures call us to do time and again. It is to serve the church, to love the church, and to work for the unity of the church instead of simply distancing yourself from the church. You see, while the mistake of saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, the mistake is idolizing the servants of the Lord. This case, I think, when someone says, I follow Christ, their issue is that they are ignoring the servants of the Lord that God has given to his church for their benefit. And so one error is thinking too much of God's servants and idolizing. The other error is thinking too little of God's servants and dismissing their God-given role in your life. This passage then continues through a series of, of course not, questions. You'll see what I mean. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Of course not, right? I mean, this is talking about the physical resurrected Jesus. Is his head in Taiwan and his arm in America and his foot in South America? Is Christ divided up? Of course not. He is one and we are one body. Paul and Cephas and Apollos are one body, the body of Christ. He goes on, was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. Of course not, right? I mean, this is stating the obvious, and so let me just state the obvious for you. No one at Jacob's well ever died on a cross for you. Whatever ministry is really important in your life, like Lundgren, Young Life, a college ministry, a previous church, whatever it might be, just so you know, no one there died on the cross for you. But Jesus did. He goes on. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so, there, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. The sacrament of baptism is just pregnant with meaning, and there's a lot that we could dive into in regards to baptism that Paul's talking about here. But one of the significant things about baptism is that baptism is a dedication. Baptize is proclaiming who we are dedicated to for our whole life. A, a modern day equivalent, it's not a perfect illustration, but it's a wedding ring, right? A wedding ring is a, is a symbol. 
It's a symbol that we have dedicated ourselves to another person. And so in our wedding vows, we'll say things like, I, you know, Joe, take you, Jane, to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse. And so whether or not we fight like cats and dogs or we get together in perfect unity every day, whichever way, I am dedicated to you. For richer, for poorer. So if we live in a mansion or on a street corner, I am dedicated to you. In sickness and in health, if you are a perfectly, you know, skinny, beautiful, healthy person, or if you are in a coma for 30 years, I am dedicated to you. In sickness and in health, until death do us part, as long as one of us is breathing, I am dedicated to you. If you're here and, and you're a single person and you, are, uh, and you see a pretty girl or you see a handsome guy and you see on their finger a wedding ring, it is supposed to say to you, back off, right? Back off because I am dedicated to another. In a similar way, baptism says, I am dedicated to the Trinitarian God of the universe. Jesus says, be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are dedicating our entire lives to him. And when we baptize, it means that from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, I am dedicated to the God of the universe for all eternity. Now at Jacob's, well, one of our commitments is that we practice household baptism, right? It's not the core, it's a commitment, okay? It's one of the things that makes us unique. And Paul talks about here in verse 16 when he says he baptized the household of Stephanas. And so when we practice this, when we are baptizing our children, what we are doing is we are dedicating them to the Lord God. And we're saying they belong to you and you have given us to oversee care of them, but ultimately they belong to you. It echoes those words of Joshua in Joshua 24 when he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Paul says, man, I thank God that I didn't baptize a whole lot of you. And I never baptize anyone in my name because you're not devoted to me. You're supposed to be devoted and dedicated to God. You know, it doesn't matter who baptized you or where you were baptized, but, but who you were baptized unto. You know, I, I, sorry if this is offensive, but occasionally people will walk up to me, they'll be extremely proud and, and happy and overflowing and say, hey, I, I, was, I was baptized in the River Jordan, the exact same place Jesus was by the Bishop of Jerusalem. And I'll smile, and, oh, cool, you know, but I'm thinking inside, who cares? Like, who cares? It does not matter where you are baptized or who baptizes you. It matters to whom you are baptized unto. Who are you dedicating everything to? The God of the universe. Paul implores us to fight for unity by fostering a united mind in the core of the gospel, by fostering a united master, our Trinitarian God, but finally by fostering a united message. If you have the King James Version, you'll probably notice that verse 10 reads a little bit different. It says this. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. The ESV says that all of you agree. 
In other words, Paul is saying, listen, you need to agree on what the primary message is that we are going to speak to one another and to the world around us. And then down to verse 17, Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Paul was an evangelist. When someone came to faith in Christ, at the beginning he would baptize them, but then when the elders were established, they would take over and do the baptizing. It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul knew he was speaking into a culture where speakers were idolized, and so he wanted to give them the simple gospel truth. Paul did not want the attention to go to the messenger. He wanted it to go to the message. He didn't want he didn't want Paul to be the highlight. He wanted Jesus to be the highlight. Now what does it mean by the power of the cross? It says he didn't want to empty empty the the cross of Christ of its power. What does it mean that the cross of Christ is power? How is there how's there power in the cross of Christ? How's there power? Well, do you know any other two pieces of wood that make dead people alive? I don't. <laughs> do you know any other two pieces of wood in the hands of God that can unite sinful man with the holy God? Do you know any other two pieces of God that can take all of these people with all of these preferences and all of these personality types and unite them together as the body of Christ the church? There is no other. There is power in the cross of Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, the Trinitarian God, for the first time in the history of the world, was ununited. The Father forsake the Son because on the Son was poured our sins. And the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son. They were disunited so that we could be united to a holy God for all eternity. And then Christ rose from the dead on the third day to give us newness of life. This is the simple message of the power of the cross that Paul preached to the Corinthians. No fancy rhetoric, just a simple message of the cross. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller who was talking about how he's listening to a sermon by Dick Lucas. There's really nothing new under the sun. Uh, but, but he was talking about how uh, Dick Lucas, who, who was a bishop at Great St. Mary's uh, Church at the University of Cambridge in the UK, um, he shared a story about how when Billy Graham was coming to preach, okay? It was 1955, and, and Billy Graham was invited to come and to speak at Cambridge to share the university mission, and he was going to preach every night for a week there. And as, as it led up to that time, uh, Billy was getting a lot of heat in the London press. They were saying things like, what in the world is this backwoods American fundamentalist doing, coming and taking, talking to our best and brightest? And so this intimidated Billy, if you can believe that. And he was a little bit scared and caught off guard. And so he decided, you know, I'm going to study up a little bit. And so he started Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and other really smart people so that he could kind of impress the people there uh, at, at Cambridge. He didn't want to sound dumb, but evidently the first four nights didn't go that well. Uh, Billy tried to, to pull these things out and to relate to them and to connect to them and impress them a little bit, show them that he's not just a dumb Christian. He's, he knows what he's talking about. And so the first four nights didn't go that well. But then came the last night, and Billy decided, you know what? I'm just going to preach about the blood. 
just going to preach about the blood. Forget everything else, just preach about the blood. So he, like Paul, was hoping in the power of the cross of Christ for sinners. And Dick Lucas says this, he says, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of the couch who was a future bishop on another. Now both of these were good men in many ways, but they were completely against that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, dear Billy got up and started Genesis and went through the whole Bible and talked about every single blood sacrifice you could imagine. The blood was just flowing all through Great St. Mary's. Everywhere for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were totally embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everybody's shock, about 400 young men and women stayed to commit their life to Christ. As we see in next week's passage, the message of the cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. But it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Listen, if you share the cross of Christ with people, if you share the gospel of Christ with people, either in conversation or in small groups, or if you're a speaker, you may think, you know what, I don't really do this that well. I kind of fumble my words. I stutter. And it's probably true. You're probably not that good. Sorry to break it to you. There's probably hundreds of thousands of people that can share the gospel better than you. But you know what? The power is not in our eloquence. The power is in the cross of Christ. Others may share the gospel better than you, but they cannot share a more powerful gospel. We must speak the message of the gospel with our our clumsy, pathetic, humiliating ways. The power is not in the messenger. It is in the message. It is in the power of the cross. The cross of Christ must be our unified message to the world. Let me end with this. You know, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays for unity in the church. And he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Excuse me, I messed right. So that they may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Why is it so important? Why is it so vital? Why is our unity so vital for our witness to the world? Let me share a story that I think somewhat illustrates it. In a Peanuts cartoon, um, Lucy demands that Linus changes the TV channel. And she is threatening him uh, to change it. And he says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? And Lucy says, these five fingers. She says, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this, into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Linus responds, what channel do you want? Turn him away. He looks at his own fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? Satan loves disunity in the church. He loves it. He loves when we're fighting with each other instead of fighting for the gospel. He loves when we fight because it undermines our mission 
to unleash a message that is so wonderful to behold, to share the love of Christ with one another and with the world around us. Jesus prays for us to have unity. Paul implores us to pursue unity, even when it's hard, even when it's messy, even when it's exhausting. By fostering a united mind in the core of the gospel, by fostering a united master, our Trinitarian God, and by fostering a united message, the cross of Christ that has the power to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord God, we are united in Christ, whether we like it or not. (laughs) May we live out the unity as a church towards one another and towards the world around us. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to be mastered by you and to follow no other master. Lord, may we be bold in our proclamation of the cross of Christ, that others may join this messy church and find the unity that is only possible in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we turn to this table, we are reminded of the cost of this unity, that it costs you your only son. That's how much you wanted this. And so God, pray, Lord, through, you, through, this, through this meal that you may remind us of our unity. May we foster it for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.